Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor and host of Babbage. Last week, allegations were made that the topics trending on Facebook are actually selected in part by human editors. Facebook has given the allegations a big dislike. Mark Zuckerberg has responded in a Facebook update. Trending topics is designed to surface the most newsworthy and popular conversations on Facebook. We have rigorous guidelines that do not permit the prioritization of one viewpoint over another. But the controversy has left a question over the extent to which big social media platforms behave more like traditional editors. So what are the consequences for users, for publishers, and for political debate? More on that with our own social media experts later in the program. First, we turn to a new report that leaves no doubt about the consequences of the overuse of antibiotics. Already in 1945, the scientist Alexander Fleming, the one first to discover the most important of all the antibiotics, penicillin, foresaw the problem. One important thing should be remembered in regard to penicillin. It is the only one of the antibacterial drugs which is not in some way poisonous. At least 100 times the ordinary dose has been given to men without upsetting them. As there is no fear of poisoning, the amount given should be ample. And I have a fear that when penicillin can be bought over the counter, patients will indulge in self-medication, and in many cases they will not take large enough doses. The dose is too small, the microbes will not be cured, and there is a danger that they will be educated to resist penicillin. Anne McElvoy spoke to the chairman of a new report on antibiotics, Jim O'Neill, and our science editor, Jeffrey Carr. So, Jeff, let's start with the nitty-gritty science here. How do these resistant superbugs evolve? They evolve through the normal process of evolution. They have been fighting each other for billions of years. They've been planet far longer than we have. Uh, and they've developed chemical warfare to uh, combat each other. And most antibiotics are uh, either natural molecules or derivatives of natural molecules that have developed as these chemical weapons. There are also genes out there that protect uh, organisms against these things. If you apply a selection pressure to an organism, any organism, uh, then um, it will evolve. The genes that help it will become more common. And so if you throw what is, from the bug's point of view, a poison at it, genes which help it deal with the poison uh, will become more and more frequent and you will develop what looks, from our point of view, as resistance. And what are the main factors driving this resistance and why it is happening? Well, the main factor is too much antibiotics in the environment, and that is caused by two things. One is overuse by people. In many parts of the world, quite possible to buy antibiotics uh, without a doctor's prescription over the counter. And there are parts of the world where that's absolutely necessary. There are parts of the world where doctors are not easily found. The other enormous use of antibiotics is in agriculture. Some of that is to protect animals from disease, which is sensible. But it was found uh, early on uh, in in antibiotic history that giving antibiotic drugs to uh, animals 
cause them to put on weight faster. And so a lot of them are given as weight supplements. Now, that's useful if you're a farmer, but it really is a huge source of, resi- of resistance and it's something that needs to stop. So, Jim, you chaired the new report on antibiotic resistance. Why choose you as an economist to do that and why would you want to do it? So I think the reason why I was asked is, is because many, many scientific specialists uh, have some knowledge of the kind of thing that Jeff was just saying. They have deep awareness of the scale of the problem. But unfortunately, it's a, it's a very small universe. And most people outside of that, that world not only have no idea, but aren't explained or encouraged why they need to do something about it. I could give you a, a very, very recent example. Three weeks ago, I spoke at the Wired uh, UK Health Conference. One third of an audience did not know what antimicrobial resistance was. And how big is the threat that we're facing in terms of health? What's the prediction you come up with? So we looked at a world where AMR didn't exist as a problem, and we looked at a world where it would appear to be going on the path where, worryingly, it's going. The difference between the two is an astonishing 10 million people a year, that's a year, dying by 2050. Can I ask where those figures come from? Because the, the, the report says that the current death toll is about 700,000, which sounds plausible. We know it's 200,000 for tuberculosis, for, for resistant tuberculosis. 10 million is an enormous increase, um, and it's an, in, an increase uh, into a future where people are going to become richer and public health, presumably, um, sewage and that, all that sort of clean water uh, will be more available. You would expect the underlying diseases to become much rarer. So you're suggesting that they're going to be fabulously more resistant. Let me emphasise in giving you the answer that we looked at a whole number of scenarios, and this is not the worst one at all that we uh, considered. And part of the answer is something that Jeff touched on, which is tuberculosis. Already around the world today, obviously primarily in the emerging world, the enormous strides made about uh, TB prevention are under staggering threat because of the growth of drug-resistant TB. And of our 10 million uh, deaths, uh, somewhere between a quarter to a third are just in TB alone. And of the, the infectious diseases around the world, right now TB is the biggest threat. We discussed this a little bit in the paper that we published today, but it, whilst we're in a much better position in HIV uh, and malaria today, there are clear signs that as drug resistance grows because of the natural process, a lot of the great strides made in those two battles will also be lost if we don't do something about it. You convinced, Jeff? I think uh, the TB risk is very much bound up with the HIV risk, and um, HIV, you know, HIV infection is is being curbed at the moment. No, I agree. no we, we would agree with that. The thing I would like to ask, ask you, though, is in the wider context, given that a lot of this problem is caused by the overuse of drugs, both in humans and in, and in uh, and farming, how would you go about curbing people's use. It's a classic problem of, of uh, tragedy of the commons, as far as I can see, that small, individual, sensible decisions um, c- uh, come together to create one large problem. My simple answer is we, we need to stop treating these things like sweets or candy. Um, we're recommending a whole load of supply interventions that are about getting new drugs, but just as importantly, perhaps even more importantly, is things that reduce demand and stop this 
global misuse of antibiotics in particular. So, Jeff, having listened to that, what do you think the challenges or perhaps any remaining doubts might be about how we go at this problem? As I observed, this is a, tra- a tragedy of the commons. It's very hard to get people to change their behaviour, particularly when what they're doing is rational. Taking and- antibiotics. Taking antibiotics is rational. If you if you have a sore throat, for example, as I do at the moment, it might be caused by a bacterium. It might be caused by a virus. There is no diagnostic at the moment which can tell you that quickly. A doctor might perfectly reasonably recommend you take antibiotics, even though they may do no, do no good. And to all our listeners, don't forget, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can email us at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. On last week's show, we talked about new uses for eggshells and new outbreaks of yellow fever. The issues generated many comments on social media. On Facebook, Diane Greenberg-Roeders issued a post in which she said that instead of trying to improve plastics by using eggshells, we should try to use technology to find ways to make less plastics. On the topic of yellow fever, one Twitter user, Leo Fatchin, pointed out the irony that we can go to the moon, but we can't control mosquitoes. And Christopher Weekly wrote... Relax. Trump will build a wall so high the mosquitoes can't fly over it. If you have anything to add about this week's show, please do. Next, Facebook has admitted to using people to help select what stories it includes on trending topics, so that what the people regard as more newsworthy topics trend more. Facebook denies any political bias. Here is what the company said last week on the matter. This product also has a team of people who play an important role in making sure that what appears in trending topics is high quality and useful. But what does this mean for what social media users get to read and what they don't? Joining me to unravel the issue is Denise Law, our head of social media, and Alexandra Suich, the U.S. technology editor, with us on the line from Silicon Valley. Welcome to you both. First, Denise, walk us through what happened last week. So Facebook's curation team was basically accused of suppressing conservative news from appearing in the trending topics section of the site. Facebook later denied such claims. They revealed that they did actually have human curators who are surfacing relevant content on trending topics, but that they do not suppress political bias. Okay, so what is trending topics and how does that differ from the newsfeed? So the newsfeed is driven purely by an algorithm. But trending topics, what happens is the the algorithm will start to pick out really interesting things that people might be talking about, such as hashtag lunch or hashtag Donald Trump. The curation team will then step in and basically follow a strict set of guidelines to filter what is then chosen for trending topics. So hashtag lunch, for example, might be happening every day, and that's not particularly you know newsworthy. But they might, for example, find out that Donald Trump is trending and they will be able to verify those sources with some other media sites and decide that that's important for trending topics. Now, if Facebook is regulating content, then it seems like it's acting less like a neutral social media platform driven by what users like and dislike and more like an online news site. Alexandra, what are the implications of that? Well, Facebook is interested in getting users to come back as much as possible. What they're interested in is keeping you there. So they're going to show you things that are relevant to you. Friends updates work a lot, but then they also find that users engage with professionally produced content and news is a really big part of that. I actually don't think that they're inserting editorial judgment into into the process too much. They might be for trending topics. And now that this issue has come to light, they're going to be paying much more attention to 
it. But really, the, the thing that's driving most everything on Facebook is an algorithm. And they're not going to want to upset their users. What's going to be first and foremost in their minds is surfacing content that's interesting to users. And I think that that's what's led them to be successful. And that's where they're going to continue to be focused. But the bigger issue here is about transparency, and it took this incident for us to realize that there is no such thing as neutrality. Even the algorithm could have biases in it, and should we know or to what degree should we know how much about how these algorithms or humans operate? Denise, why don't I ask you about that first? What is the issue with transparency? It's not so much the regulation or human curation aspect that's problematic. It's more that Facebook markets itself as a platform or technology company, even though It's increasingly acting like a news publisher. And and I get the sense as a user, when I look at what's trending, I'm led to believe that that's what other people are talking about just naturally. Now that I know that perhaps, you know, there's a human curation team behind that choosing and surfacing what's most relevant to me, it does make me wonder a bit about what kind of editorial judgment they're applying in the selection process. Now, in the case of the transparency around the human operators, we have seen a copy of the document about how they should exercise their control. Denise, you've read it. What, what does it say? Well, Facebook released its curation guidelines last week. It's a 28-page document featuring specific steps of how to filter out spam and potential clickbait. What was really interesting for me was how they also included guidelines on how to verify sources and do fact-checking. And that reminded me of reading a handbook from, from journalism school. It's like, this is exactly what we're taught to do as journalists. So in many ways... I got the sense that, you know, they are trying to build up some sort of editorial capability. The question is, do they have the same level or standards of editorial judgment that other publishers do? Here's what Facebook had to say on the matter of guidelines that they give their editors. The guidelines demonstrate that we have a series of checks and balances in place to help surface the most important popular stories, regardless of where they fall on the ideological spectrum. Okay, so much for the human beings. Alexandra, in terms of the algorithmic transparency, this seems to be pushing more against Facebook to disclose more about its practices. What's happening in the U.S. about these political obligations that authorities are pushing upon Facebook and how is it responding? Republican Senator John Thune asked for more information about how Facebook decides what constitutes a trending topic. On the broader subject of transparency, this is very similar to Google's search algorithm. It remains a mystery to content producers and the public about how its results are ranked. And in the past, there's been um, some criticism of how things are surfaced, but in general, it's remained a mystery. I expect the same thing to happen with Facebook. It's a private company. There are no regulations that would force it to open up, and it's not in their interest to. So I think they'll try to calm this um, media storm down on the censorship question, um, and then it will be business as usual. Do you think this is going to be something that always hangs over the company because there's so much suspicion about it, or do you think that it will just blow over? No, ultimately, I think that this is a fairly minor um, flare-up, and it will die down. I think uh, American conservatives often think that the media is biased toward a liberal view, um, and this fits in line with that criticism. I think the broader story, though, is one of Facebook's growing clout when it comes to media consumption and when it comes to influencing people's political views. Its importance in people's lives is only going 
going to increase. It doesn't face much competition in terms of time spent from Twitter or any other social media properties. And so the fascination with and preoccupation with Facebook, I think, will continue. But I think that this controversy will die down pretty quickly. In the case of publishers, Denise, what does it mean for people like me and you, editors who work at publications? I think if you're a publisher who's becoming increasingly reliant on Facebook to drive the bulk of traffic to your site, then it is quite worrying. You could say for a long time that Facebook was like a delivery truck. It was just another way to distribute content. But with the introduction of an algorithm, you start to think, okay, it's starting to basically curate and and, and, and surface relevant content for audiences. And a parallel that I find really interesting is that's also the role of the editor of a news organization, the editors and the correspondents need to choose what's most important um, to to, to serve to the reader each day in the paper or or in an online edition. And Facebook is also sort of tapping into that relationship and doing the same thing. So from that perspective, I do think that Facebook can be quite worrying for some publishers, especially if they're very reliant on the platform. So I actually disagree with Denise. I think that it's true that Facebook has become more like an editor um, and is is trying to present articles that its readers will find interesting. In Facebook's case, the articles were written by um, people who do not work at Facebook. It's other media companies. But I disagree that this is a worrisome trend in terms of censorship. I think the more worrisome trend is what's happening to publishers. You know, online advertising does not pay very much. And the deal with Facebook is that people will usually stay within Facebook to consume the articles and so aren't going to necessarily explore articles that publishers have written on their own site. So I think the more worrisome trend is the economic decline we're seeing at traditional newspapers and not necessarily Facebook's Uh, editorial curation directing people to certain articles. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.